The Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129 presents America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture with Father Matt Malone and Carrie Weber. Good day and welcome to the broadcast. I'm Father Matt Malone, Editor-in-Chief of America Magazine. And I'm Carrie Weber, Executive Editor for America Magazine. Each week we offer you the news and analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by our team at America Magazine. And we are joined by one of our team here in the studio, Zach Davis, who is an associate editor. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you, Father Matt, Carrie. And J.D. Long Garcia, our senior editor, joins us now uh, to talk about this piece. J.D., how are you? I'm doing just great. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Uh, so tell, tell our audience a little bit about this article, uh, uh, why you wrote it, and what it says. Yeah, um, great. Um, well, the, it, starts, it starts out with the caravan and, and trying really trying to find um, a place of common ground, if we can, to talk about the caravan. Uh, Kevin Clark, our, our chief correspondent, and I were talking about that during one of our huddles and, um, and really trying to find a different voice or a middle voice. And in the middle of doing the reporting on it, this, this study came out from, uh, from Syracuse University that um, they keep track of all sorts of uh, federal agencies uh, through the Freedom of Information Act. But um, the, the, the study found that the denial rates for asylum seekers was going up. Uh, there's, there's many things that the study found. And, uh, we linked to it in the article at americamagazine.org. But, um, but, but the, the key thing that we focused in on was that the denial rates were going up. And that's, that's in a way, particularly alarming because we have more and more asylum seekers. There's more and more people that are coming to the United States to seek, uh, to seek refuge. And um, so that, that's what we started focusing in on and, and through the interviews trying to, trying to talk about this caravan and the people in the caravan in a, in a, in a different way, in, in a less uniform way. And are we talking about the the rate of denials going up or the overall number? Because one would expect well, well, the overall well, number, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, so so where so what, what uh, uh, Syracuse University found was that um, the judges are hearing a lot more cases. I mean, an uh, incredible. I think it's up eighty nine percent from uh, from two thousand sixteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fiscal year uh, two thousand sixteen, uh, which is you know that's nearly double the number uh, of cases that are being heard, uh, and then the denial rates are also going up. So um, so the number's going up, but, e- but even within the number itself, the, the rates are going up. Now, uh, does that mean that these cases are not receiving the same amount of attention that they would have uh, in previous years? I can't imagine you increase both the number and the rate of denial and suddenly give everybody extra attention. Oh, right, exactly. That's a great point, Carrie. Um, and, and that's one of uh, one of my sources. I've mentioned that from one of our sources from clinic that we are um, good partners with there. Um, that, that that they are the the judges haven't gone up. The number of immigration judges that that would make the decisions on these cases hasn't gone up. So, in a way, uh, it's circumventing the the justice process or, or due process uh, with the asylum um, cases because they're there's this mandate to go faster and faster to deal with the backlog uh, so that the, the, it seems to be that the, the priority is to get through more cases as opposed to get people uh, a just hearing of their case. J.D., I wonder if it's helpful to just step back and talk about what the asylum process is like. Where does someone first encounter the U.S. Uh, immigration system to claim asylum? Are they thinking about it ahead of before they reach the border? Um, and then how long does it take to process? Yeah. 
And what and what is yeah, asylum? What is it that they're actually seeking? Yeah, that's great. Those are those are a lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of questions right, and you have a so, minute. Um, right, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, oh, one minute. Okay, guys. Uh, <laughs> no, but the um, uh, no, it's a very good question, including the difference between an asylum seeker and a refugee. So a refugee would be somebody who was an asylum seeker but is now uh, in a, in a different country is being protected. But um, but I mean, we can go down back to, to 1951. Uh, with the UN uh, Convention on Refugees uh, that, that sets out some principles of people who are being persecuted. Um, and so people who are being persecuted in their, their home countries uh, have the, uh, the opportunity to apply for asylum in, in another country. Uh, and usually the persecution has to do with race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or because of a political opinion. Um, so, uh, and again, this is in 1951. This is where it comes from, the mm-hmm. United States. Then in 1980, with the Refugee Act, kind of formalizes that for us, and so it's part of U.S. law. And um, and so the the way that it goes, if I'm say I'm an asylum seeker and I'm in, and I'm being persecuted in my home country, and uh, that that means that my home country can't protect me, right? right. So um, uh, so so then I I want to go to another country so I can have protection. Um, so I can either uh, apply for it in my home country, or I can show up in the country where I want to go to and ask for asylum there. Now, the UN uh, doesn't really make, distinguish how you get to that other country. So you can, uh, in the case of people crossing the border illegally, you could cross the border into the United States and ask for asylum that way, or you could go through a port of entry, um, and, you know, you could walk through, in the case with with a, a you know from Mexico or Canada, uh, otherwise you have to take a you have to take flight, right? right. Um, and then you could ask in person, um, uh, ask for your asylum case to be heard. Um, but Jamie, it, I just want to stop it, you on one point you made. Yeah. So you're saying that it doesn't matter the the manner in which someone crosses into the country as to whether or not their right. asylum claim is legitimate. That, well, that, that's exact. Well, that's exactly right. The Trump administration, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, it started to keep up with all the different activity. But uh, I think it was a, it could have even been last week. The Trump administration attempted to change that to say that if you're an asylum seeker, you have to do it through a port of entry. Um, but uh, but a, a, a judge struck that down, so I'm sure that'll be uh, debated. But as of today, it doesn't matter how you arrive into the United States uh, as far as how your asylum claim will be heard. Um, right, because the, the judge, because yeah. the judge was basically saying, "Look, you're trying to change the law here unilaterally, right. and it, it's for Congress to change the law, right?" Right. Yeah. yeah. So you have yeah. we have these thousands of people who are uh, coming toward the southern border, and and they are traveling for often months at a time by foot, and they cross the border and then they and they say I'm here because I'm unsafe in my place of origin um, and th- and then they apply for asylum is that correct that's right yeah, yeah that's right and the, so the first step that you have to pass is the credible fear right uh, so it's sort of a credible fear interview so that will be um, oftentimes with the border patrol uh, agent uh, uh, immigration agent not not an actual judge and then if the if if after that interview, which could be up to two hours long, um, the, uh, the that agent will either pass you on to the next step where you would prepare your case before a judge, uh, and that could take you know a year and a half to two years mm-hmm. to be heard, um, or they'll say no, sorry, you don't have a credible fear, and then send you back. 
Right. Um, that that's that's um, there's an earlier question that we had talked about, but like uh, on the border, uh, some some of these folks are waiting uh, over two months even to have that first initial credible fear interview. Right. So that's what a lot of the folks in Tijuana are doing. And that so, interview uh, is really obviously very crucial, right? So how how yeah. do how do um, the individuals seeking asylum prepare for that? Do they have some help? Do they have uh, are there ways that they can, you know, clearly communicate what their fears are? Yes, there's a, they, a clinic and, and there are other humanitarian groups that are providing counsel, uh, free counsel to them in those cases. But there's there's so many in number that they there's that there are many um, asylum seekers that don't get the benefit of, of that kind of legal uh, counsel. Um, and, and the other the other facet there is that uh, in June, uh, Kevin wrote about this. But in June, um, the, the Trump administration said that gang violence and uh, fear of domestic violence no longer counted as part of the credible fear uh, part. So that's another thing that's kind of complicating our asylum process is, is what actually counts as, uh, I don't know, what counts as credible fear and what counts as, what counts as persecution. Right. Um, so, and, of course, then, you know, and what we hear from the uh the folks who are opposed to this process or who want the law changed to restrict these asylum applications is these people are faking it or they are not really in danger, that they are coming to the U.S. because they want to game the system or they want to live off the teat of the federal government or they want to take our jobs. Um, and, you know, that there, that there is a uh, – that, that basically these people who have up and left everything that they've ever known – um, are doing it for uh, their own, that their selfish gain. Right, and, and that seems to be very out of touch from the yeah. people that I speak with. I, I, if you look at the denial rate, so um, there's a 65% denial rate of that uh, uh, of asylum cases, um, but there's only, let me see if I can remember my number, numbers right, only 15% of, uh, of folks make it to pass the credible fear uh, uh, <laughs> test. So first interview, um, wow. so yeah, right. So, so we're talking about like maybe five percent of people who are asking for asylum actually get through. So, if you can imagine, if, if you're well informed about it, which is an assumption in itself, uh, but it's, let's just say that you're well informed, a uh, well informed asylum seeker. So, I'm going to risk my life uh, and travel thousands of miles for a five percent chance of getting in. Right. Um, that seems like, I mean, that's a pretty risky way to gain the system. Um, But what's more likely the case is that they have a little bit of information or that they're just living in such fear that uh, anything is better than this. And so I'm going to give it a shot. Um, The other other That seems more probable. Well, it sure does. And that's uh, more consistent with the the immigration attorneys that I've interviewed. That's been their experience as well. Uh, Again, not from a political uh, point of view, but but just from from reality. I mean, we're... We're talking about a group of people, and, and of course, it's very difficult to to talk about them in, in broad brushes. If you use a broad brush, you miss the detail, right? So, um, but but the individuals are are oftentimes coming from uh, a lower level of education, right. so they wouldn't be informed. And, and and frankly, I mean, I they might not even be illiterate. Like now, J.D., many of the people coming, uh, we've talked about a lot of the challenges they're facing are women and children, right? So, it it's a very 
particular risk that a family has to take to bring out their children on this journey as well, right? You know, we were talking before the break about, you know, maybe people are trying to kind of game the system, but it seems unlikely that uh, people would risk their children's health and safety and lives for, for such things. I think that that's right. I, I um, if it, we've I, in Central America, especially for young uh, young girls, we're finding uh, we're hearing about uh, we've been hearing for years about gangs and how they approach families and, and basically uh, force force young girls into gangs and and what that ends up meaning is that their lives are prostitution. So um, and there we also hear about I've interviewed uh, young men who have been threatened uh with family members have been threatened you know if you, if you don't join the, this gang uh we'll, we're going to kill your mom or we're going to kill your dad whatever and uh and that's that kind of fear of of death uh, you you could understand why they would come because of that sort of that push factor you I, it's very difficult to understand them coming for a less than five percent chance to to receive asylum yeah, and I wonder uh, what it, what exactly is the uh, the Catholic Church doing uh, at at the border, working with these folks, working with law enforcement. Um, what is what is the unique contribution of the church in all of this? Yeah, the 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 church has been on the border uh, for for decades, uh, and we've had humanitarian outreach there uh, for decades, and and uh, in. And my years reporting, I've gotten a chance to see how that's that's changed over over the years. And we have, in in many cases, we'll have uh, uh, shelters that are set up for people who have been deported from the United States. And you know, Mexico is a very big country. So if you're from Southern Mexico, they don't bring you to Southern Mexico. They just leave you on the border. So and you don't know anybody there. You don't have their resources. So the Catholic shelters began um, sprung up to to help. Uh, individuals that uh, in that circumstance uh, individuals also obviously are going north and what the shelters have seen over the last since 2014 about uh, that, that there was a, a shift in the kind of immigrants meaning uh, starting in 2014 they started seeing a lot more Central Americans coming through as opposed to Mexicans so um, so that that's one part uh, on on the US side there's there's uh, shelters that are set up um, El Paso, there's a number of uh, shelters that are set up where um, they actually cooperate with, with ICE so that if, uh, if say, a mother and her child are detained and, and released, um, they, the Annunciation House in El Paso has a lot of migrants that have been dropped off there by ICE um, because they don't have room in their detention centers or because they're in the process of being released um, on bond. Or, or possibly with an ankle monitor. So the church on the border has a lot of direct aid uh, for, for migrants that are in very difficult situations. Now, you uh, you write in your piece that uh, be- even before the current administration, previous presidents have put tough regulations into place on immigration. Um, uh, President Obama deported 2.5 million immigrants. Uh, so this is not the first time that we've, we've struggled with this issue in our country. But one of your sources uh, says that the Trump administration has put into place fairly significant changes and uh, for deterring people to come, but aren't really doing anything to address the root causes. And this is a little bit of a change. Can you talk about that for a bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. The, there's um, there, there's a notion I think um, among uh, many, many uh, Americans, particularly in the United States, uh, and including the president, that that the the people are coming here to to game the system, and so that there has to be like a a deterrence, um, and there has to be kind of a threat of what will happen to you if you attempt to come to this country, and may, basically not make it easy to come to the United States. And so there's been, um, you know, in October, um, uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, announced that the uh, refugee numbers were going to go down to 30,000, for example. Uh, that's the lowest it's been in like four decades. So, um, <clears throat> so that's, that, that would be one example. The Trump administration's been cutting off uh, individuals who have temporary protected status. Uh, and that's uh, from different countries, and that that that's something that's illegal. Again, a legal immigrant that was here um, that was able to stay in the United States because their home country is experiencing natural disaster um, or, or just um, of lack of stability, and so that's another kind of a legal avenue that's been mm-hmm. cut out. Um, and what and, about and foreign have, aid? Foreign aid is also <laughs> that's foreign aid's going down. So um, our projection foreign aid for Next year to the, the what we call the Northern Triangle, uh, Guadalupe, uh, sorry, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador is going to be at least 180 million uh, next year, which is a significant drop as well. So, the we're really not doing anything, or certainly not doing enough to help the. According to my sources, we're not doing enough to to help uh, people in their home countries because if you think about it, you'd rather stay at home. I mean, you're. It's a different language. It's a different culture. Your family's around. That the ideal situation really is not you, to come you, to the United States. You have to be so. pretty desperate. And so, so is that why the number has so dramatically increased? The number who are seeking asylum uh, or coming to the southern border is it because the situation has gotten dramatically more desperate in their places of origin? Is it a is it a some sense that you know? Uh, President Trump might be trying to shut down the southern border, and and if we're going to go, we need to go now. Is it uh, is it a combination of factors? What why the why the big increase? Yeah, I it, it, that that's a, that's a difficult question. There's a lot of speculation about that. Uh, certainly, the the circumstance and the situation in uh, Central America is getting worse and worse and worse. And um, not to anticipate another question, but the. I mean, the United States had a role to play in that. So we were involved in the civil wars in Guatemala and El Salvador. And uh, <clears throat> the, the, our involvement with the war in Nicaragua also had a negative impact on Honduras. And so we, the United States has played a role in destabilizing that region. Um, the other thing just to point out is that Para uh, Salvatrucha, MS-13, uh, started in Los Angeles, and we deported them back to El Salvador. So, and that's a um, gang, so, uh, right? That's a gang, sorry. An organized yeah, crime gang, gang yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's uh, in many ways more powerful than the government in Central America. So, um, so, there's, so yes, the situation continues to get worse and worse. Um, and then as uh, they have, you know, Central Americans have family members in the United States, so there's a, there's a desire to be united with their family as well. Mm-hmm. That, that's another factor. Um, but it, it's it's hard to say. I, I've, yeah. I've interviewed immig- uh, immigrants on on the border, and I've asked, so you know, <laughs> what do you think about this uh, about this being a deterrence? And 
and frankly, I mean, they say like, well, I mean, I just spent six months detained, but I was safe. Right. Uh, and, and, and so even if they get caught, they're safer than they are at home. Right. So we have about uh, two minutes left. And what do we need to do about this? Right. I, I think that the uh, curious question about doing something in these countries of origin is a really important one. Uh, that that that's a that that I don't feel like that's really being discussed very much in our in the political landscape right now. Right. Um, but that that would be dealing with the push factor has to be a primary a primary concern. Um, and then, but just the numbers in the meantime, like that's going to be a long term solution. Right. Uh, one place of agreement would be that we need more immigration judges. We need more people to hear these cases, um, so there isn't this this long backlog. Is um, that a, and, re- and, a resources question, like, or sort of do we need to just appoint more judges, or do we not have Im- immigration judges? Uh, yes, <laughs> all of those things. All of the have. above, right? right. Yeah. All of the above, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and, and then the, the way that we. Uh, you know, the, the United States, the, the Refugee Act really is a humanitarian effort. There's a right. humanitarian spirit to who we are as, as Americans, and that's being lost, particularly with this administration. So to return to that, and I think that's reflected in how we detain people, how the separation of families this summer as well. You know, how, what, what, what do we do with them, uh, with, with these individuals that come to the United States reflects right. on who we are as a country. So I think the changing how we, how we receive them and how we... You know, to, to think that you come to apply for asylum and you end up incarcerated, that's, yeah. um, that, that's hard to stomach. So there's a lot of those things that need to be changed. But the long-term solution that most, most individuals that I've spoken with tell me is that we need to do something about these countries that in many ways we had played a role in um, destabilizing. Right. That in a certain sense we have to make them, we have to help to make them the conditions in their countries of origin a little less desperate so that they don't feel that they're fleeing a sinking ship or a house that's on fire. Uh, The piece is, uh, uh, as immigration denial rates increase, asylum seekers face a setback at the U.S. border. It's by our senior editor, J.D. Long Garcia. J.D., thanks so much for being with us, and thanks for your coverage of this issue. Thank you very much. And, of course, you can find that and all of our immigration coverage, uh, which has been extensive in just the last uh, couple of years, but... I don't think there's probably not a month in the 109-year history of America Magazine that we haven't talked about immigration. <laughs> so and this is, you could spend your life looking issue, at it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the major issues of our time. I right. think if we look back on, the, you know, in 50 years, if someone looks back on coverage of this topic and we don't have it, we've failed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We had a... Um, screening of a new film uh, at America Magazine last week called Hesburgh. It's about Father Ted Hesburgh, who was president of Notre Dame, very active in the civil rights movement, very active in immigration reform. He helped to bring about the Immigration Reform Act of 1986. He brokered it between Democrats and Republicans. Ronald Reagan led the effort, um, assisted by George Bush, whom we were talking about at the top of the hour. Uh, The last time that this country and its two parties came together to deal with this issue, um, in a very sensible and a very thoughtful, very compassionate way. Um, it's, a, it's still a model, so you know, we have the resources in our history to deal with this problem. All we need now is the will. You've been listening to America This Week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. For all of the stories that we've been talking about and much more, check out americamagazine.org forward slash Sirius. And to subscribe to America Magazine, call 1-800-627-9533. That's 1-800-627-9533 for a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. 
For Zach Davis and Kerry Weber, I'm Father Matt Malone. Thank you and good day. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 